You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. That hymn that we just sang some moments ago, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. I don't know where that hymn was for the first 15 years of my Christian life, but we kind of stumbled across it a couple of years ago. And did you think about what you were singing as you were singing that? That he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure? And then the hymn writer asked the question, why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. Do you realize that the Son will receive the full reward for His suffering? All of it? And you and I get to gain from that reward? Why should I, who is a, am a wretch, why should I gain from His reward? The hymn writer says, I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart, but that His wounds have paid my ransom. That I know. Why I should gain from His reward, I don't know. My new favorite hymn. My previous favorite hymn was To God Be the Glory, Great Things He Has Done. And then this one slowly crept ahead of that one. That's still a, a good, uh, close second place hymn. Why should I gain from His reward? Turn to the book of John, chapter 1. The book of John, chapter 1. We're going to read together verses 14 through 18. And then we'll ask God's blessing upon our, our study together. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after Me has a higher rank than I, for He existed before Me. For of His fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Let's pray together. Our Father, it is truly out of the heart of joy that we come together this morning to worship You and to offer to You our our time, our talents, and our treasure. We thank You that You did give Your only Son to make us wretches, Your treasures. We thank You that we will gain from His reward Thank You that the Son will receive the full reward for all of His sufferings. And we pray now that as we look at Your Word, that You would cause us to be in awe of Your grace, cause us to be in awe of this Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is preeminent, supreme, and has the supremacy over all things. We thank You for such a wonderful salvation. We ask Your blessing upon our time of study. We know that it would be presumption to think that we could gain and glean from Your Word apart from the illuminating work of the Spirit. And so we pray now that You would be our teacher and that this time would be profitable for our edification and our equipping for lives of service and ministry and love and obedience to You. We ask this for Christ's glory and in His name. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but I have found that the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John have been a whirlwind of theology. If you haven't felt that way listening to it, I want you to know I've certainly felt that way preaching through it. I feel like I've um, been drinking from a fire hose in my office every week as I study and prepare for Sunday mornings. There's just too much there to take in. And then I feel like I come here and sort of information dump on you on Sunday morning and it's, it seems like too much for me to 
expect anybody here to take in. And uh, there's a reason for that, and that is because in the first 18 verses, which we refer to as the prologue of the Gospel of John, John introduces themes and theological subjects in seed form, that is, in a very concise way, that he is later on in the Gospel going to unpack and unfold and illuminate and spend sometimes chapters on. There are things that are just one sentence in the first 18 verses, which later on will become whole paragraphs and even halves of chapters and whole chapters as Jesus or John through Jesus expounds upon this. Or I should say Jesus through the Gospel of John expounds upon some of the things that are mentioned in the first 18 verses. And so it kind of seems like we've been a little bit overwhelmed and we've taken it as slow as we as slow as we can or as slow as I dare go and yet as fast as I possibly can at the same time it's kind of a difficult balance to to take in in the first 18 verses we have we have watched John sort of introduce the main character of his gospel which is the Lord Jesus and we have seen him declare that this one who we know as Jesus the Christ is the son of God and he is at the same time God the son it is not sufficient simply to affirm that we believe Jesus is the Son of God. Mormons can affirm that. Jehovah's Witnesses can affirm that. Christian scientists can affirm that. Every cultanism on the face of the earth could affirm that. But we must at the same time affirm that He is God the Son. That He is with God. That He was God. That He is the Creator of all things. That He was before all things. And since He is the Creator of all things that had a beginning, He Himself did not have a beginning. And John has tried to unpack that for us and to show us that this one, who is the eternal Word of God, became flesh. He took upon Himself real human nature, real human flesh, and became a real man. Not by exchanging His divinity for humanity, not by changing His divinity into humanity, but by taking into His divinity humanity so that we can affirm of Him that He is one person, two natures, fully God, fully man, in perfect harmony in the one person the Lord Jesus Christ. And He stepped into human time. He stepped into human flesh. He took upon Himself human nature. And the world had two responses to that. Most rejected Him. Those who were His own did not receive Him. He came into His own and they didn't receive Him. The world didn't receive Him. All of humanity, Jew and Gentile alike, are guilty of rejecting their God. But there were some who believed. And those who were, did believe received grace from Him, not by an act of their own decision, not by an act of human will, not by an act of human activity, but by the grace of God because they were born again by the Spirit of God, by the grace of God. So now we come to verse 15. And John, in showing us that Jesus, the Christ, is God in human flesh, is now going to show us that since He is who He is, He is supreme, He is preeminent, he is before all. He is above all. There is nobody that can compare to Him. Not just because He did some miracles, but because who he, because of who He is in His nature and in His essence. Because He is the eternal Word made flesh. John is now in verse 15 to 18 going to show us that He is superior to Moses. He is superior to the law. And He is superior to John the Baptist. And there are, in verses 15 to 18, three significant comparisons as John compares Jesus to three persons. First, he compares Jesus to John the Baptist. That's in verse 15. Then he compares Jesus to Moses in verse 16 and 17. And then he compares Jesus to the Father in verse 18. In verse 15, we see Jesus is 
supreme over John the Baptist. He is preeminent over John the Baptist. In verse 16 and 17, Jesus is preeminent over Moses. And in verse 18, Jesus is equal to the Father. So He is superior to John the Baptist. He is superior to Moses because He is equal to the Father. Understand that outline? Let's begin at verse 15. By the way, before you look down at your Bibles, when we say that we believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to God, it is not because as Christians we are trying to be narrow-minded or bigoted or exclusivist or because we are saying, hey, we've got the only good club and no people who don't belong to our club don't get in. And that it's not because we revel in that or because we enjoy that or because it's comfortable for us to believe. We say that because it's true. And it is true for this reason. Because of who Jesus is. This is what we've seen in the first 14 verses. There is no other person who is capable of saving us. That is why there's no other route to God. That is why all roads do not lead to God. That is why all other religions are lies and fabrications and distortions and deceptions. And that Jesus Christ is the only truth. It's because there are no other saviors who are able to save us from our sin. There's no other Savior who is capable and sufficient and qualified to stand between me and God and to intercede for me between God and I and to represent God to me. There's no other person who's qualified. Jesus is the only way because He is the only one who is qualified to save us. That who can save us. And it is because of who He is in His nature. It is because He is superior to John the Baptist. It is because He is superior to Moses. It is because He is equal with the Father that He can atone for our sins and mediate for us and to save those who will come to Him by faith. So verse 15, Jesus is preeminent, superior, uh, above even John the Baptist. Look at verse 15. John testified about Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after Me has a higher rank than I, for He existed before Me. Now, this John that's being spoken of here is John the Baptist, not John the author of this book. It's the same John mentioned in verse uh, chapter 1, verse 6. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came to bear witness to the light, to testify about the light. This is John the Baptist again. Now, when I, this is going to be interesting, I think, in the coming weeks, because we're going to look at John the Baptist, his ministry, and some of the things that he said, some of the things that he did, his fulfillment to Old Testament prophecy. We're not going to get into that right now, but we will in coming weeks. Because verse 19 through verse 42 are all about John the Baptist's testimony concerning Jesus. So we're going to have plenty of time to focus on John the Baptist. What I want you to notice this morning is just what's said in verse 15. This is sort of the summation of John's testimony concerning Jesus. He cried out and said, this is he, this is the one I told you about, who although he came after me, is before me. He is above me. He is first of me because he existed before me. Now, before Jesus came onto the scene, John the Baptist occupied center stage all by himself. He was the one who was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy that predicted that there would come one who would precede the day of the Lord and precede the coming of the Lord, who would be a voice crying out in the wilderness. So when John says, John testified about him, crying out, that's an appropriate thing because John the Baptist describes his own ministry as the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. John the Baptist was an open-air preacher. An open-air preacher. John the Baptist went places where people were, and he cried out and he proclaimed things to the crowds and to the multitudes. An open-air preacher. How many of you would feel comfortable 
going down to the city beach and stepping up on a box in front of a large crowd and beginning to preach the gospel open air. Just crying out as loud as you can. Any comers? Any takers of that offer? I met a guy when I was back at the Creation Museum in June. His name is Ralph Province. He lives over on the East Coast. He would love to come out here sometime. I've been communicating with him since then. He loves to do open-air preaching. Loves to go out in the marketplace and the universities and stand up someplace and be, just gather a crowd and begin to argue and reason with people. It's got to be nuts. How many of us would do that? You think, that's craziness, isn't it? Crazy talk. That's John the Baptist. The greatest man born of a woman, John the Baptist, by Jesus' own description. An open-air preacher. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness. And what did he say concerning Jesus? Though he came after me, he is preferred or considered or equated as first of me. Is literally what he says. He's before me. He's above me. He's preeminent to me. That's John's own testimony. Now before Jesus came onto the scene, John was the one that everybody talked about. He was out in the wilderness. He was talking to the people. He was prophesying. He was predicting. He was calling on people to repent. It was John the Baptist who was in the limelight, in the spotlight, center stage. Nobody else compared to him. He was the talk of the town. He was the one in the headlines. People were discussing him and his ministry. And is, is this Elijah the prophet? You'll see this next week. Is this Elijah or is this the Christ? Who is this guy? Everybody was talking about John the Baptist. John's own confession is, I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. And then when Jesus steps onto the scene, John points to him and says, this is the one that I told you about. Now look at John's own confession concerning Christ. Look at verse 19. This was the testimony of John. We'll look at this more next week. He confessed in verse 20, did not deny and confessed, I am not the Christ. Now some of John's later followers, we saw a few weeks back, uh, back in verse 6, some of John's later followers after actually exalted him to this place of preeminence after John was dead. But here's John's own testimony. I'm not the Christ. I'm just here to proclaim about him. Look at verse 25. They asked him and said to him, why then are you baptizing if you're not the Christ or Elijah or the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. Verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. This is very similar to what he says in verse 15. Over in chapter 3, verse 30, he says, I must decrease and he must increase. See, this is how John viewed himself. I'm simply the one who is here to announce the arrival of another. And when the time came for Jesus to step onto the stage, John was completely content to step back and let him have all the spotlight. John's own view of himself was, I must decrease and he must increase. He must be exalted. Why is that? Because he is preeminent over me. That would be his answer. Because though he came after me, he is before me because he existed before me. That's what John says, verse 15. Now, in, in every way, from every human vantage point, Jesus came after John the Baptist. John the Baptist was born six months prior to Jesus. You remember from Luke chapter 1, when Mary went and visited Elizabeth, John's mother, it says in Luke 1 that Elizabeth was six months pregnant with John the Baptist. And Elizabeth and Mary, Jesus' mother, 
were related. They were kinsmen of some sort, maybe cousins, possibly. So Jesus and John the Baptist were related to each other. But Jesus stayed in the shadows, stayed sort of off the scene until the time was right. John's ministry even came before Jesus. He was born before Jesus and his ministry was started before Jesus. Now, there, this is something I learned this last week, which I thought was interesting because I like historical details. The ancients thought at this time and even before this, long before this, actually, the ancient people, the ancient mind equated a chronological priority with superiority. In other words, if somebody came in time before someone else, they were superior to the person that they preceded. So, from the ancient way of thinking, they would view the previous generation as more wise, as better, as greater, as more uh, intelligent than their own generation. And those who came before them were greater than those who would come after them or even themselves. Now, is that an odd way of thinking? Do you know anybody that thinks that way? Our generations certainly don't. Our generations view the previous generations as less wise, less learned, less brilliant, less intelligent than our own. We step onto the scene and we think that we've got all the answers and we could solve all the world's problems and suddenly we figured it out. They thought the exact opposite. If somebody came before someone else, they were considered as greater than that person. So Jesus, humanly speaking, had these two handicaps. Number one, he was born after John the Baptist. Number two, his ministry started after John the Baptist. So what does John say? Though he came after me, both in time and in the beginning of our ministry, he is first of me. He is before me because he existed before me. What is it that made Jesus greater than John the Baptist? The fact that before John existed, Jesus existed. Now, who was born first? John the Baptist was born first by six months. But this is a great statement, and I love this. Even though I came first, he came first. Even though I was before him, he was really before me. And what does John mean by that? John knew that this one, who is the Word in human flesh, did not have his beginning in the womb of Mary. He existed before John. He existed before Mary. He existed before Elizabeth. He existed before time. He existed before creation. He pre-existed. In John 8, verse 58, Jesus said to the religious leaders of His day, Before Abraham was, I am. Oh, I love John 8. I can't wait till we get to John 8 because this is going to be all kinds of fun. I promise you that. Before Abraham was, I am. And then Jesus prayed in John 17, verse 5, Father, glorify me with the glory that I shared with you before the world began. He existed before time. He existed before space, before the angels. He pre-existed. That is why John the Baptist could say, he who even though he comes after me is considered as preeminent above me because he existed before I existed. Even though he came after six months, he existed before I ever did. Because he is the eternally pre-existent God in human flesh. So Jesus is preeminent to John the Baptist. Second, Jesus is preeminent to Moses. There is the comparison between Jesus and Moses in verse 16 and 17. Look at verse 16. For of His fullness, that is of Christ's fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Now there's two themes that are mentioned in that verse that we've already looked at in greater detail in verses 12 through 14. The first theme or the first idea is that of fullness. He is full of grace and full of truth. Verse 14. In other words, Jesus doesn't contain a measure of God's grace or a measure of God's truth. It is not measured out to Him in any way. 
Imagine the fullness of all that God is, the fullness of all that God has. That's Jesus. He is the fullness of God in bodily form. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. In Him dwells all the fullness of deity in bodily form. So that in Him is the fullness of all grace and the fullness of all truth. So it's not that the Father measured out grace and truth to Jesus, and then He measures out grace and truth to us. It is that He is in His essence, by His nature, because of who He is, the sum and substance and the totality of all grace and all truth. He's the fullness of it. And from that fullness we have all received. That's the second concept that we've already looked at that's mentioned here in verse 16. Of His fullness we have all received. Who has received it? All. All what? All believers. All those who have received Him, verse 12 and verse 13, to as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God. And those who have received Him, who have received the right to become children of God, who were born not of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God, all those who have received Him have received with Christ all the fullness of God and the fullness of grace and the fullness of truth. So, John says, we have of His fullness received, and I love this phrase, grace upon grace. It's kind of odd in the Greek. It's kind of odd in the English to even translate it. And it simply means uh, grace after grace. It's the picture of one wave of grace after another wave of grace. You ever stand by the seashore? And this, I think, is marvelous. I, I can get mesmerized by the waves as they come in. I'm talking about the ocean, the seashore, not the city beach, because this never happens at city beach. But you sit, stand by the seashore and you watch one wave come in and crash up on the sea. And then it begins to roll out and and barely does one wave recede, then another comes in right on top of it. And I can be mesmerized by that because I watch it and I think, where are these waves coming from? And what's causing the waves? And maybe just because I'm stupid or I'm not the one homeschooling my kids that I don't know this stuff. But I always wonder to myself, well, it's mar- marvelous to me that one wave comes in and then another wave comes in. And I can watch that for hours. Hours. That's the picture here with grace upon grace. Barely does one wave of God's grace recede or go out after coming in, then another one comes crashing in right on top of it. Barely does one blessing expire, then another one comes in right on top of it. I had the blessing of breakfast this morning. That's going to expire right about the time I have the blessing of lunch for lunch. And that will expire right about the time I have the blessing of dinner for dinner. And I have found, and I can testify to you, that my life is one continuous experience of God's grace from first to last, one wave of grace coming in right after another wave of grace goes out. That's a marvelous picture, is it not? Grace upon grace. Let your mind just think for a moment about the grace that is revealed to us in Scripture. And just with a moment's reflection, you will quickly realize how much grace you have been given and all the waves of grace that have come upon you. Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 and 10 says that we have been granted grace in Christ from eternity past. Do you realize that you were granted a grace before time began? Before the angels were created, you were granted grace. You were given grace. You were given grace in your election. You were given grace when you were predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. You were given grace when you were predestined to adoption. And you were predestined to your inheritance. And all of the grace that was given to you before time began was realized by you in time when you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, which was God's grace. And that gift of faith was God's grace. And the repentance that He gave you was God's grace. And the fact that He turned you from your sin was God's grace. And the fact that He gave you the strength and the power to believe upon Him was God's grace. And then having been saved, you are then flooded with grace as you seek to serve Christ. And the spiritual gift that He's given you is God's grace. And when somebody serves you with their spiritual gift, you receive God's grace. 
and you enjoy grace at an ordinance of baptism or at the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. You receive grace when you are served by other people. You receive grace as you live day by day. There's grace for times of temptation. There's grace for trials. There's grace in weakness so that in His our weakness, we might be seeing His strength abound to us more and more to the glory of God. And then there is the grace whenever we are fed from Scripture and we're given the Word of God. That's grace. Even death for you is grace. You don't fear death, do you? You shouldn't. If you do, you have some issues. You shouldn't fear death. It's uncertain. You don't know how it's going to happen or what it's going to feel like. But you shouldn't fear it. There's no fear of death anymore. He's destroyed death. So that even for the Christian... Death is God's grace because it ushers us into His eternal reward. And then for all of eternity, we enjoy His presence with the church of God and all the elect of God from all the ages of time. And we enjoy wave after wave of grace for all of eternity in the new heavens and the new earth and glorified bodies as we live with one another and with Christ in human flesh for all of eternity, enjoying wave after wave of God's grace as He sustains us and continues to bless us, and we receive glory, and we glorify Him. Grace. From before time, through all of eternity, wave after wave of grace. For all who have received Him, and trusted Him for salvation. That is grace upon grace. He is the sustainer and the provider of every spiritual need, and of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places to all of His people. That is what makes Him superior, preeminent, above John the Baptist. John the Baptist could not do that, could he? No, he couldn't. And listen, neither could Moses. And neither could the law. And that's the point of verse 17. The law was given through Moses. And this is the comparison between Moses and Jesus. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. The law never brought grace, did it? Now, be honest, when you read through the Old Testament, beginning in Exodus, and you read through all the giving of the law and what happened there and the sacrifices and the feasts and, and all of the ceremonial law, all of the moral law, all of the, uh, um, the laws relating to the nation of Israel, do you really in your mind think, oh, that's so gracious? You know, put yourself in the position of those who had to keep that when you read it. And you know what that would do to you? It would make you say, oh, I can't do that. Are you kidding me? That crushes me. That crushes me. That destroys me. I can't do that. That would make any sane individual who's reading those laws look up to heaven and say, I can't do this. I am unable to do this. This will destroy me. Send somebody to help me do this. And that was the intention of the law. The law was never intended to be an instrument of grace a means of grace, to convey grace or to contain grace. The law didn't do that. It was never intended to do that. It was never intended to bring salvation because the law couldn't do that. By the law, no flesh is justified in His sight. You know what the law did? It condemned. The law was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. The law showed us the holiness of God. The law showed us the righteousness of God and the justice of God and that all who break that deserve death. And the law showed us our need for a Savior. And it pointed to the one who would come and who could justify and who could atone for sin. But the law never offered that atonement or the justification or the forgiveness. The law wounded us. It killed us. It crushed us. It oppressed us. It made us long for the one who would deliver us from the burden and the curse of not being able to keep the law. 
And the law was given through Moses. Now, this is the contrast between the law and the gospel. But what the law could not do, God did by sending His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to condemn, to, 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 content, to condemn sin, sin in the flesh. What the law could not do because it was weak, God did by sending His Son. Because the law couldn't do any of those things. All the law could do was grind us to powder. And we sang the song this morning, didn't we? I can't quote it from memory. I can't even quote most of what I'm trying to say from memory. But it said that that's what the law did. We, the law crushed us until our guilty soul imploring turned to Calvary. That was the goal of the law. Jesus is superior to the law because the law could not do that which Jesus could do. And Jesus could do it because He is God in human flesh and He could keep the law perfectly so that He could credit to your account perfect obedience to the standards of the law and credit to His own account all the violations of the law which you have incurred already in your life and will incur for the rest of your life. So the law crushed us and Christ delivered us. And when you read the law, you never in your mind say, oh, grace. Now, it's not that God was not gracious under the dispensation of the law. He was. He was gracious under the dispensation of the law because He forgave law breakers based upon what His Son would do, knowing that He would pay, that Jesus would pay the full atonement, the full price for all lawbreakers who would turn and repent of their sin. So God offered that grace and He offered that forgiveness and God was gracious and there were gracious provisions in the law, but the law was not an instrument of grace. It didn't bring grace to us. But look at Jesus. Through Jesus, grace and truth have been realized. This is the contrast between Jesus and Moses, by the way. Moses delivered something that was not his own. You realize that, right? Even though we call it the law of Moses, it wasn't Moses' law. Moses was merely the instrument through which the law of God came to the nation of Israel. So the law came through Moses as a channel. Grace comes to us through Jesus, not as a channel. It's not that Jesus is a channel of God's grace. It's that He is grace incarnate. And so when you receive Him and you have Him, you have the fullness of grace and truth. Moses was just an instrument through which the law came. But if you want to realize truth, and you want to realize grace, you can only know it in Jesus Christ because He is the fullness of grace and truth. That's the contrast between Moses and Jesus. And of that fullness of grace and truth, we have all received. So Jesus Christ, because of who He is, the Word in human flesh, He is preeminent to, He is superior to, He is supreme above John the Baptist, and He is superior to the law, and He is preeminent above even Moses. So not only did John the Baptist come before Jesus, but Moses came before Jesus. And John's point here is, He is supreme above all of that. Moses, the law, and even the one who announced His coming, because He is preeminent. Because of who He is. And what makes Him preeminent? That's verse 18. His equality with the Father. Now read verse 18 for a moment. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, or Son, if you have the King James or New King James, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Now at first glance, you read that and you say, I don't really see how that fits. That seems out of keeping with everything that's come in the first 17 verses. I'm not really sure why that is there or what that's being said. You'll see how it fits here as I explain it. No one has seen God at any time. This actually, verse 18, is a perfect way for John to sort of end this introduction to his gospel. No one has seen God at any time. Now, do you believe that? Yeah, you do, because it says that right here, right? But in your mind, you're thinking to yourself, hold on a second. I've read my Old Testament, 
And I remember times when people did see God. What about Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 when he saw the glory of the Lord in his temple and the train of his robe filled the temple and all the seraphim and the cherubim were uh, chanting, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. What about that? What about Daniel? What about Joshua? What about Abraham? What about these men in the Old Testament who saw God? Yet here in John it says nobody has seen God at any time. Is that a contradiction or is there some way of understanding what John's saying here? There is a way of understanding what John's saying. Because John is not saying nobody has ever seen a vision of God or a manifestation of God. He is saying nobody has ever beheld with their eyes and seen God as He is in the fullness of His nature, in the fullness of His essence, or all of God. No one has seen the Father. Do you realize that all the Old Testament appearances of God were not the Father appearing, nor were they the Holy Spirit? They were theophanies, theos meaning God, and uh, phany or phanos for appearance or vision of. A theophany was an appearance of God or a vision of God. Those theophanies were not the Father and they were not the Spirit. They were the pre-incarnate Christ. They were the Son of God appearing in human form or in some form, maybe even not in a physical form, to people in the Old Testament who saw Him. But even Isaiah, remember Isaiah 6? That massive vision that he has. And what was Isaiah's response to that? I'm undone. He came unglued at the seams. He literally felt like he had melted. What had Isaiah seen? Isaiah had seen all of God that he and his human fallen constitution could possibly take in. And yet, was that all of God? That was just a glimpse. That was just a glimpse. Isaiah's vision of God, Daniel's vision of God, Abraham, Joshua... Any who saw God in the Old Testament, all they saw was a veiled image, a veiled image of one person of the Trinity, the Son. They did not see God in His fullness, all three persons existing in all of His glory, because no man could see that and live. That's what God said to Moses. You can't see me and live, but I can put you in a rock, put my hand over it so you can't see that, and I can let you see the receding parts of the hind parts of my glory. But you could never look on my face and live. It would destroy you. It would come undone. So all those in the Old Testament who saw God, so to speak, saw veiled visions of God. But listen, there is one who can tell us what God is like. Because he not only has seen God, but he is what? He is God. And when that one comes in the flesh, he can tell us what God is like, unlike Moses. Why? Moses never saw God. But there is one who is in the bosom of the Father, and the idea there is continually in the bosom of the Father. There is one who has that intimacy with the Father, has always enjoyed that intimacy with the Father, and continues to enjoy that intimacy with the Father. And even while he was here in the flesh, he was in the bosom of the Father. And because he who is God, who is in the bosom of the Father and enjoys intimacy with God, he can reveal to us what God is like. No man has seen God at any time. But there is one who is God who can tell us, who can explain to us what God is like. That's verse 18. No one has seen God at any time, but the only unique... That's monogenes, the same word we looked at last week. Not begotten, but the only unique, not created, only unique God. Unless you have the King James or the New King James, then you'll notice it says Son. Right? That's quite a difference, isn't it, between God and Son? Is it really a difference with a, how would you say that? 
Is it really a difference that means anything? Earlier manuscripts have the only unique God. Some of the later manuscripts that the King James and the New King James used uh, have only unique Son. It doesn't matter really whether it was Son or God because we're not sacrificing any theology either way. We've already seen that He is both the Son and He is God. It was probably later changed to Son. The earliest manuscripts that we have read God. He is the only unique God who is in the bosom of the Father. And because He is in the bosom of the Father, He, that is Jesus, has explained the Father. The word explained, it's a great Greek word. It's the word from which we get our English word exegete. Exegete. You know what an exegete does? An exegete draws the meaning out of something and presents it to people with an interpretation. It was a word that was used to, of laying forth a story or telling a narrative, giving all of the essential details so somebody could see the first from the last and explain different parts of it and give everything that was essential for an understanding of something. To interpret it and to explain and to unfold it and lay it out. That's what I do for you here on Sunday mornings. My job is to be an exegete. My job is to unfold Scripture, to lay it out in front of us so that we can all see it to explain its meaning, to interpret it, to present it, to declare it, to proclaim it, to speak it in love. That's my job. What I do for you on Sunday mornings with the Word of God is what, and that's, by the way, what every pastor should do, that is also what Jesus does concerning the Father. He explains for us or lays out for us all that can be known of God. Everything that you and I have the ability to understand concerning God has been explained to us in the person of His Son. So that you and I can never say, oh, I wish I knew more. I wish I could understand more. We should never say that because we can't. Everything that we can't understand is given to us. And I would say actually quite a bit of things that we can't fully understand. Is that not true? There's a lot about God that you and I don't know. There's a lot about God that's not been revealed to us even in the pages of Scripture and even in the person of Jesus Christ. But all that can be known, sufficient for all that we need, has already been manifested, explained, laid out for us in a narrative form in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is superior to John the Baptist. He is superior to Moses. He exceeds the law because He is full of grace and truth. And He is all of that because He is equal with the Father. So who can we look to or turn to to give us an explanation of what God is like? You want to find out what God is like, you need to look no farther than the Lord Jesus Christ. Because He is the unique God who is in the bosom of the Father, and He has declared or explained Him. That is why He's better than John the Baptist. John the Baptist could never give us an explanation of God like that. That is why He is preeminent above Moses, because Moses could never do that. All that we learn from the law and all that we learn from Moses pales in comparison to what we see of God in Jesus Christ like the moon pales in comparison to the noonday sun. Did Moses have a revelation of who God is? He did. But listen, friends, it is not even a glimmer compared to what you get in the person of Christ. Everything that can be known by fallen man about God is revealed in the person of Christ because He is the unique God who is in the bosom of the Father, preeminent to Moses, preeminent to the law, preeminent to John the Baptist, above all things because He is the eternal Word of God in human flesh, made flesh for us to see. And Jesus Christ has explained God. Now that's a wonderful conclusion to the introduction to the Gospel of John, is it not? For John to say, see how that fits perfectly? And now what John is going to do, beginning in verse 19, is he is going to prove to us for the next 21 chapters that everything that he's just told us in the previous 18 verses is true. He's going to lay out all the witnesses and all the evidence. 
And He is going to demonstrate to us that He has told us the truth in the first 18 verses. That if you are going to come to know Jesus Christ as the Son of God and have life in Him, you are going to have to trust this One who is the Word made flesh and who came here and suffered and died to pay the penalty for our sins so that you and I might gain from His reward. What a salvation, huh? Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, we do thank You for Your grace to us in Christ. We thank You that You have not hidden Yourself from us, but that You have revealed to us all that is necessary for us to come to a true knowledge of the one true God. Our desire is to know You in Jesus Christ whom You have sent. We thank You that the Word was made flesh and has explained to us and laid out for us who You are so that we might know You. Thank You for that clear revelation. Thank You for the blessing that it is to be the recipients of that revelation. And thank You for making us Your own. We ask now, God, that You would give us grace as we leave here. And may Your mercy and Your grace follow all who believe, both now and today and forevermore, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.